And for me, coaching, the definition of coaching includes that we, it says we believe, but I like, we know, we recognize human beings are whole, creative, and resourceful, full stop. And to me, the three principles, SIDS insights, are the philosophical or psycho-spiritual underpinning of what the coaching profession says it does. Welcome to the Coaching Life Podcast, where we peel back the bullcrap and brush away any photoshopping to give you an unfiltered look at what it's like to live a coaching life. I've been following today's guest uh, for quite some time on social media. We hang out in some of the same groups, and she's a highly respected member of the Three Principles community. And she recently caught my eye um, when I was looking to put together some content specifically around relationships, because I noticed this year... She's been married for 40 years. Wow. Uh, She's previously been a waiter, a writer, an editor, a business manager, and a full-time artist. Oh, my goodness. And has been coaching now for well over 20 years. But as she just said to me, nobody's counting, right? Um, Now, when I reached out to her about this podcast, and I mentioned, you know, that relationships are a favorite topic of mine, and I asked if she'd be willing to come on here and talk about relationships, talk about her, her work, her reply was very simple. She simply said, I would be delighted. Well, I too am absolutely delighted uh, to have you here. A big warm welcome to you, Molly Gordon. Hello. Hi. Thank you, Phil. (laughs) I just, yeah, I'm already so happy. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm so pleased you agreed to this and so succinctly as well. Thank you so much. So, um, yeah, to start off with then, could you share uh, with us a little bit of what it was really that got you into coaching and starting coaching was it 96 what yeah January what happened 96. Up to that? yeah in uh, September 1995 uh, and I promise you this will not be a year by year blow by blow <laughs> account in September 95 I was in a workshop uh with the company of women uh I'm not retweeting their names but two uh fabulous feminist women, artists, creators, writers, philosophers, put on a workshop. And I was in this workshop and we were doing one of these things that combine a little movement and a little visualization, kind of making a timeline of your life. And it came to me. I had a a fiber art studio. I made knit and highly embellished wearable art for eight years. And it came to me, I'm not having any freaking fun. And I'm not making any money. Why would I keep doing this? So I decided in that moment that I would close my studio at the end of the year. The holidays were always my best sales. So I would work hard, do my best to maximize, optimize the return on all my stuff. And then I'd close on December 31st. It was just so clear. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And right up until the end of the year, during the holiday sales. What are you going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. People have a remarkably difficult time accepting I don't know. (laughs) Really pissed me off. As this is going on, it occurred to me, well, to back up, uh, five years before that, I had done a workshop for artists and artisans on business communications. Because when I got into the arts, I realized that most of the people around me didn't know anything about business. And I was no Richard Branson, but I knew things like you date transmittals, I knew how to write press releases. I knew a few things that were really helpful. So I got a grant to do this workshop, ran the workshop, and people started to ask me for business help. And it's like, look, just buy a freaking sweater. (laughs) I don't do that. And one day, while I'm irritated that people won't take I don't know for an answer, it occurs to me I could start saying yes to those phone calls. And that came with the same kind of clarity as I'm going to close the studio. It's like, I'm going to say yes. So I started saying yes. Within two weeks, I had seven clients. They all 
arranged themselves to come see me once a week. And I thought, what is this? Is this business therapy? Is this what? And I described, I used coaching as a descriptor for what I was doing with people, but I had no idea it was a profession. After three months of this, I told one of my clients who was also a friend, I said, I don't really know what I'm doing for you guys. It's making me a little crazy. I'm running around doing all kinds of extra work for you, trying to make it worth what I'm billing you, which at the time was $35 an hour. Uh, <laughs> a week later, I get an, a big manila envelope in the mail with a Newsweek magazine. Thomas Leonard, the founder of Coach University, is on the cover this feet up on a lawn chair in front of his mobile home. He was touring the United States to promote Coach University and the profession of coaching. And the post-it on the cover said, this is what you do. And that's, I looked it up. I looked Thomas up. I looked up Coach U. I said, holy freaking mother of God, this is what I do. <laughs> and that's how it started. Oh, that's just so wonderful. And and I would um I haven't gone back and looked, but it sounds, you know, there's elements of that that are so familiar. So many people, you know, come on here and, and that I talk to, obviously, outside of this podcast, who essentially, it's like most people, in fact, I can't think of anyone who it hasn't happened to, really, have stumbled across coaching in, in some mm -hmm. way. But that's quite an incredible story that it was really put in front of you, like this path yeah. was, was laid out so plainly. It was just laid out, and, you know, my clients told me that this is what I did, which I kind of loved. So it looked obvious to me to go there. I mean, I'm curious how that felt as well, like um, having these people showing up that wanted your help, so I get that you were perhaps resisting initially. What was what was that about? And um, I get it that we could just say, well, there was a new, sh a new thought that occurred to you to say yes, but uh, I'm curious, what was it do you think you were resisting in saying no? Oh, until that point? Mm -hmm. and, until the point where it came to me to say yes? It was just simply that I had made a decision. You know, I was in the business of making things. And at that point, I thought I wanted to make things. As far as I knew, I wanted to make things. And I saw myself as a maker of things. And I defined my success as a maker of things and a seller of things as an artist, and I didn't think I had the interest or qualifications. I just hadn't, you know, it's like, if, if you make a pie, a pumpkin pie and take it to a potluck and people praise you for your nice contribution to the vegetable table, and it's like, well, you know, technically that's true, but I thought it was a dessert and I kind of want to be praised for my dessert, kind of like that. It just wasn't on my radar, it wasn't in, it wasn't what I thought I was up to. Mm. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I mean, I noticed that I'm trying to like predict or, or imagine really what that would have been, what that would have been like, because I notice uh, I still have this going on, you know, the thoughts that like, well, who am I to even help these people? Yeah. Um, but clearly there was something for you that just decided there to give it a shot. Yeah. You know, what made that, let's see if I can be accurate about this. There was, for lack of a better word, a clarity about the recognition, that moment in the workshop when I went, I'm not making money, I'm not having fun, I don't have to do this. And it's like, if I'd been pulling down 100,000 a year, I might have thought I had to do it, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not making it. Nobody, nobody's paying me to do this. So there was a, a, it was so clear to me that I had the freedom to change. So I changed. And then when I could say yes occurred to me, it had this, this simplicity and clarity. It's like, like I could say yes. And I wasn't really caught up with any other conversation. It didn't occur to me really to question it. Now, after I said yes, I had lots of thinking about how to prove my value. I was making databases for people. I was writing their press releases. I was designing posters to advertise their events. 
all to justify the $35 an hour, and I was only charging for the hour they were in my office. I was working 14 hours a day. My husband thought I was a crazy woman, and he was right. 14 hours a day to justify seven times $35 worth of income in a week, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what I was up to. So there was lots of turmoil and second guessing going on, but there just didn't happen to be any about the direction. It's like I, it was clear to choose the path, and I made a sloppy, muddy mess of the path for the first six months. Does that make sense? Yeah, beautiful. I love that. I love that. Um, and, and of course, naturally curious now about like next step because I, you know, over what twenty two years, I think you said. Um, clearly, things have progressed, and I'm guessing yeah. that um, there's much less of that kind of thinking going on now. If any. yeah, there is. There's less and more. You know, it depends. <laughs> um, I I really was overperforming for all my clients, and I can't remember exactly the time and sequence, but I realized I needed to know more about what coaching was. It it overlapped what I had been doing, but I was doing a lot of things that weren't coaching, like Mm -hmm. poster design and database preparation. I ultimately, I got some formal coach training. I fired my first seven clients because I'd trained them to be hopelessly codependent. And I I signed up with the International Coach Federation. I joined them in early 96. They had a coach referral database or process. I got my first, quote, peer coaching client through that database, a software engineer in uh, back east who wanted to take early retirement, go to art school and become an artist. And it was just, you know, Kismet, the luck of the draw, serendipity. She was my perfect client. She needed what I had through no fault of my own. I was perfect for her. And we worked together for several years, and she successfully made that transition. And she is, she owns a gallery. Um, She completed an MFA in fine arts. Um, It was just beautiful. So, yeah, it it morphed and about my first coach training i say it made coaching twice as effective and half as much work and that's really true wow yeah yeah where does the um the three principles come into all of this into this journey? so fast forward to about 2010 ish mm-hmm. i had michael neal doing a keynote um presentations for a self-employment telesummit I ran from 2009 to 2011. I asked him because I thought he was really smart and a great speaker and he'd be a good draw, but I wasn't really just between you and me interested in what he had to say because I thought (laughs) what he had to say. And he showed up differently in 2009. There was something more profoundly human and settled and wise about him. So I had him back. And in 2010, it was better. And I think he probably, I think he mentioned Sid Banks in 2010. And I might have done a little research. In 2011, he just hit it out of the freaking park. And it was so real and compassionate and relatable and useful and settled down in a way that I'd never experienced Michael's work. Because I always found NLP to be a nice idea, but a whole lot of work. Like, what do you do when you get tired of snapping your wrists with paper bands and anchoring your this and visualizing your that and shrinking things to a bread box? It's like, I just want to live life. So I think 2011, probably, I started looking up George Pransky, and I, I got serious about looking at the principles. I was a uh, had been a certified facilitator in the work of Byron Katie, I was familiar, I thought, with thought, and to some extent I was. And so at first glance, I just thought, yeah, mind, consciousness, thought, I get it, right? (laughs) No argument. So what, you know? Mm -hmm. But what kept me looking was the change I saw in Michael. So I kept looking, and one day I came across two things happened. 
I got Sid's videos, and I think it was one of the Hawaii lectures. Sid is saying something like, if you're driving down the street and you're listening to this recording and you have found this nice feeling, throw the tape out. And I think I'd heard that two or three times, but this time I thought, I know what he's talking about. Every time in my life, when I met my husband, when I, in that workshop, when I decided to close my studio, when I decided to say yes to people asking for some kind of business help I couldn't decide, when I got that Newsweek in the mail, every time that I've made a significant decision or seen something that significantly changed my worldview, I have been in that place that Sid's talking about, and I've known it. And I thought, and I could rely on that. It's like, what if, what if that's all I need to know? Something like that. And then Bill Pettit, I saw a video of Bill talking about innate mental health and innate well-being, and that totally blew my socks off. And that's what closed the loop for coaching. I saw that all the moments in my life when I have been feeling really messed up, like as a teenager, as a young girl, as an adult, and then in the next moment when a light would come on and I would know myself to be okay and I would have this kind of new lease on life, this a way forward, I went, oh, that's what that is. And what if that's all I have to know about that is that it exists. And for me, coaching... The definition of coaching includes that we, it says we believe, but I like we know, we recognize human beings are whole, creative, and resourceful, full stop. And to me, the three principles, Sid's insights are the philosophical or psycho-spiritual underpinning of what the coaching profession says it does. So I told you I'm talking a sweet spot. Uh, such a beautiful description it really is it really is i'm wondering then molly if if i was watching um season what would it have been season 10 or season 12 of of molly gordon coaching and Mm -hmm. then and then watch say season 14 (laughs) what what might i see that was different well season 14 was kind of a train wreck Because when I first got the principles, it's like I got the gospel. And I proceeded to, uh, this is so embarrassing, but basically to batter my clients about the head and shoulders with the principles. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to. I heard the no tools, nothing to do things, so I threw out everything I'd learned as a coach. Big mistake. And not a big mistake as an experiment, but I'm glad I didn't land there. So it took me a few years, and it was actually, I am a a mentee of the Pranskys, and I sent George a coaching session to give me feedback on, and he said, you know, Molly, your grounding's really good, but your coaching sucks. And the light bulb went on. I thought, it's not coaching or the principles. It's E, all of the above. The principles are the foundation. They're the source code. They're the, they point to the insights that show us why coaching works because everyone has access to innate intelligence, not just access. We're all made of it. And why does this interpersonal engagement so powerful? Because we are part of the same stuff of life, the energy of life. And coaching training the skills and techniques it's not the the techniques as like screwdrivers and hammers in a toolbox but it's it's years of having played with those screwdrivers and hammers the way an artist plays with a paintbrush it's useful to have some experience listening it's even more useful to have had some experience noticing that you don't listen very well that's really helpful so it all came together you know, coaching is a, uh, 
I think it's two things. It, it can be a skill set, but I also see coaching as a an occupation that meets clients at the boundary, at the border of infinite possibility, formlessness, and what they want to do in the world. So the principles are all about grounding in that formlessness, which is great. And if somebody wants to get something done in the world, I'd like to help them. So I don't stop by connecting my clients with formless potential. I want them to know that they've got that at their backs and then have whatever conversations will be helpful to them to make those ideas take shape. I totally relate to that. Um, you know, in, in of course, in some of the communities we hang out in, this is a kind of a discussion really that that does come up very often indeed, very often in a three principles community. Because certainly I, I see that there are people out there who you know want to coach but really the focus is entirely on teaching the principles which is quite different not certainly useful absolutely good grief absolutely but not coaching yeah and if i go like perhaps to the other extreme i would say well to for me anyway how i see it is that coaching is just simply helping the person in front of me in any way that i can that shows up yep so I don't have to have that client, that person sitting in front of me trying to teach them anything. That's right. And I do say, well, I just love my clients, actually, because I'm not trying to change them. But it's like with, with, with what we mentioned, the term grounding, but really with any understanding, if, if you're in a conversation with me, any understanding that I have about life, if we're talking about life and how it works, of course that's going to come up and you know the conversation will just naturally evolve in a particular direction without me without little me if you like little brain me trying to do anything it seems to just happen organically yeah exactly exactly yeah it it was a a big light bulb the day i mean i got a client who was actually another coach and she wanted specifically to work with a master certified coach she was experiencing some burnout in her career, some doubt about coaching in the process. And when she reached out to hire me, I thought it was shortly after that conversation with George about good grounding, bad coaching. I don't know what I'm going to say to her when we have our you know, exploratory conversation. And as it happened, I listened to her for about 40 minutes, pour out her heart about what was going on. And it became obvious to me that for her, I said, can I tell you a little something about my adventures with (laughs) self-improvement? And I told her how the principles helped me get off the self-improvement merry-go-round. And that really lit her up. And so we arranged to have an intensive and I shared the principles with her in that intensive. And then we coached for six months. That was for her. Another client came to me who's also an ICF very experienced coach, wanted to work with an MCC. I listened to her talk about where she was in her life and what she wanted. And she wanted to have conversations, reflective conversations about um, what's calling her now at this point in her career, uh, building more space and joy into her life. I didn't hear any misunderstanding about how life worked. She may not have Sid's understanding, but hell, I don't have Sid's understanding. So I don't think I've ever explicitly talked about the principles with her. I'm not hearing that there's a need there. Um, so I, I do it all over the map. You know, and I just booked another new client and I found myself saying, you know, there's this thing I think would be really helpful for you to understand. It's kind of like this. Uh, We'd start with an intensive and sure enough, he booked an intensive. But if everybody really is whole, if everyone really is animated by the intelligence of life, then you respond to that person, not to the need to carry the gospel. It's like, I have an apple tree out my window that's my best teacher. You prune the tree in front of you, not some <laughs> ideal tree. I'm not going to teach that tree how to be an apple tree. 
I love that. I love that so much. Like one of my favorite clients at the moment, she's uh, very senior in a uh, very large pharmaceutical corporation. Um, and we're talking about leadership the majority of the time. Yeah. But of course, I mean, leadership, relationship, leadership's all about relationships. Life is really all about relationships, right? So, um, and, you know, I've been in leadership positions for 20 years or so. And before, <laughs> back in civilization, that was. So, of course, you know, there's there's a lot of experience there that I can I can also I can also look at my previous experience through the understanding that I have now. I'm I'm curious actually. One thing I made a little note here, um, as a full time artist, do you do you spot or maybe on reflection now, is there any anything from your time, you know, being a full time artist that helps you now um, oh, in coaching huge. and helping others? Huge. Um. First, I was totally surprised to become an artist. Uh, I never thought of myself as an artist. I always thought, you know, I'm, I'm smart. I'm not arty. I'm not creative. <laughs> Such a silly distinction. So that was a whole surprise to me. The process of... discovering of improvising what you're going to make, because that's how I worked. Um, trying it, putting things together, experimenting, getting lost, you know, in, in all of my best and most ambitious projects, there would be a point about half, two thirds of the way through where I'd go, this is either going to be the ugliest piece of shit in the world <laughs> I don't know. Can I say that on a podcast? You certainly can. Um, or it's going to be fabulous. And sometimes it was ugly and sometimes it was fabulous. Um, the process of creating and making things take form in the physical world just gave me a feel for, for living that I think is hugely valuable in coaching. It helped me, it gave me a feel for incubating. It gave me a feel for the, the actual concrete value of not knowing as part of the creative process. It gave me a feel for uh, for happy accident. And all of that feel gives me a trust and a confidence. And I feel it gives me, a, I can tell when someone's in a creative process. So it's really easy for me. Like I had a, a woman come to me yesterday and she said, I've never been good with money. And I it just sounded like such a really odd way to tell the story about her life experience <laughs> with money. I just recognized instantly, here's a person who's been in a creative relationship with money all her life and doesn't know it. She thinks there's a thing called good at or good with. And I think my experience as an artist gave me a feel for how life works that has me recognize that those kinds of statements are just a misunderstanding of a creative process. And I've never really thought that out before, Phil, so that's helpful. But once you get a feel for it, it's like you get your sea legs, you get a feel for the beat in the music. Um, that makes a lot of things easier in life. You know, I have a story to tell on myself. When I was eight, I learned to ride a two-wheel bicycle. And it was a real challenge for me. I was an anxious kid. I didn't feel physically adept. I didn't have physical confidence. I didn't feel coordinated. For one thing, my eyes work a little weird. And I had issues with balance. The main issue being I was scared to death I was going to fall down. So I worked really hard to figure out how you ride a bike mentally. 
I thought about different approaches to it. I tried to analyze. Are they making lots of little turns? Are they wobbling side to side a lot really fast so you can't see it? What are these people doing? Because I thought staying upright was something you did. (laughs) But it's not. It's something you get a feel for. Mm -hmm. And as you get more and more of a feel for it, you discover the capacity to do some things with it, but you've got to have a feel for it before you can do anything with it. And that was a huge lesson to me. And I think that that lesson probably applies in every part of life. But we think we figure out how to lead. We figure out how to coach. No, you get a feel for it. You get on the dance floor, you get a feel for it. The more of a feel you have, the more you can play with it. But you can't play with it until you have a feel for it. I love that. I love that. Like, yeah, our learning, our most useful learning comes from being in the experience. I mean, another, I've heard a similar story really about swimming. You you cannot learn to swim by reading a book or simply having a conversation with somebody, right? You need to be in the water. You do. Yeah. Um, The other thing really about art, you know, is I've noticed, I'll share here, is that I'm often um, astounded often very briefly though because i'm like yeah of course (laughs) there it goes again um that i will perhaps create content that's Mm -hmm. i mean this this podcast is a form of art right we're here we are we're creating um i'll create content i'm usually active on facebook and i'm often astounded that at the some things that i can put out there that i think is an absolute crock of shit (laughs) will get a phenomenal response and get engagement and what have you um and I mean, there's 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 no rules here because sometimes sometimes my thinking's right, sometimes it's way off. You know, it's yeah. like it, it bears no, it seems to bear very little relation to reality yeah. actually. Because there are some things as well that I I know. Oh, that feels really good. I'm so excited to post that. I can't wait. I'm going to put it out today instead of tomorrow. And yes, a similar thing can happen. Or you know, you can just get tumbleweed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so to me, that kind of also, that speaks as well to, again, the intellectualization of the idea of coaching. Mm-hmm. We never really know what we're going to get. That's but I, right. I, I, one idea I like is to simply allow ourselves to be in a creative partnership yeah. with the person yeah. that, we're, that we're spending time with. Absolutely. Hmm. You mentioned, um, Molly, you know, this whole thing about being uncomfortable with, I don't know. So I'm going to delve mm-hmm. a little bit in here. In that particular area, perhaps, is there anything in particular <laughs> over the time that, that you've found the most challenging in not knowing? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, personally, um, I don't know what's right. You kind of just alluded to it, you know. I, I grew up uh, a, a cradle Catholic, and I uh, from the from very early age I had what you might call mystical experiences or whatever. I had a great relationship with whatever God is, mm-hmm. whatever mind is, and on top of that I had was steeped in Catholicism, which sometimes supported and enriched that relationship and sometimes warped it. And I don't know if it's fair to attribute it to that, but for whatever reason, I have a personality where I just notice all the layers in which I get preoccupied with being right, knowing what's true, what's right, what's true, what's right, what's true. And more and more, it just seems to me that that's a really, uh, it's not something we can know. And I think it's the wrong question. I don't know what the right question is, uh, but I'm getting a feel for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what I find when I'm having a hard time with not knowing. It's when I think there's a right answer that I need yeah. to know. Yeah, or when I'm yeah. having a heart, a strong need to be right, when my security is linked to being right. And I also think um, 
simply seeing the nature of all ideas and beliefs kind of helps um, loosen up the idea of right. Oh, it it does. It does. And yet it's interesting to notice. I'll think that I'm really quite, you know, light and fluid about this whole right thing. And then I'll discover there's something in my life where I'm hung up and stressed out. And it's because, oh, I thought there was a right answer. Hmm. Yeah, this what a great segue into something else I wanted to ask you about. Because one thing I notice about you, how you show up, is you're certainly not a pacifist, or at least it doesn't look that way, right? There are a lot of people out in the Three Principles community take the understanding and just look, they're just super, super chilled. I'm not suggesting you're not chilled, but... Um, <laughs> you you willingly share our opinion on what's going yeah. on in the world. Yeah. So h- how do you see that where coaching perhaps can have an impact in making the world a better place? Yeah. I like you to know, ask my, these really small, easy questions. I just thought of another coach you really must interview, Andrea J. Lee. Thank you. She is uh, in an exploration right now uh, She's doing a, a master's in interdisciplinary studies, and she's looking at the roots of violence, individual and collective, how coaching can influence that, how coaching, coaches, coach, coaching's responsibility, the profession's responsibility for um, social change, individually and collectively. She's a fabulous person. I don't really know. Uh, you know, I personally have not really thought deeply about coaching and social responsibility, oddly enough. I have thought a lot about kind of what seems like the paradox of, uh, for me individually, of having opinions and social action if I really see separate realities and we're all, we're all one. And I really do, at least on some levels, I really see that. But for me, it looks to me like the nature of mind or God is creative. Part of that creativity is that it, whatever it is, wants to play in the world of form. Because that's what's happening. So it looks to me like it would be a colossal cop-out for me to go, well, you know, I kind of see the light here. I'm not worried that we're shooting black boys. It's really we're all one. And it's just a big misunderstanding. It's like, yeah, it's a big freaking misunderstanding. And black boys are dying in the street. That's not all right. And black men are dying in the street. That's not all right. Just to name one of my places that comes to me. So my take on it is if it comes to me to care, it's my job to care until I see differently. I am not going to do a spiritual bypass around my caring. I recognize my caring may not be the right thing, and I'm willing to not know if it's right. I'm going to do it until I see it differently. Thank you so much for that. Really, thank you. Uh, Thank you. I see what you share, and it it touches me. So really, thank you. Well, you know... um, we haven't even spoke really about this yet. Like I mentioned it in the intro about you being married for 40 years. Yeah. Um, so And I lived it, in sin with him for three years. Let's count that too. <laughs> <laughs> 43. 43 years. You know, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, it is. It's like when you said that in the beginning, I told you I was so happy. It was as I connected with that. I am so freaking lucky. Uh, both of us giggle about this almost every day. We think it's dumb luck. Um, Wow. We recognized each other somehow in a bar. Uh, He was still in a marriage that was falling apart, which I didn't realize at the time. I was 18, he was 39. Other than those things, it was meant to be. Why wouldn't this work out? For the first seven years, I was drinking and doing a lot of drugs, a lot. Uh, Made life pretty crazy for both of us. Then I cleaned up. 
And the first two years after I cleaned up were at least as hard as the first seven years, if not harder, because now I was a saint. Um, and then something happened. I remember sitting at the kitchen table in an apartment. We were probably about nine years married. And I had this insight. Miles loves me, and there's nothing I can do about it. He doesn't love me because I'm this or that. And it's like, he just freaking loves me. There is no explaining this. And it was like a weight fell off my back. And I hadn't realized how much of my bad behavior in the first years of our marriage was that I was trying to live up to his love. And then I realized there was nothing to live up to. And pretty much since then, it's been a piece of cake. And it's it's gotten better and better until like now it's freaking ridiculous. And it's like, I don't know, the Princess Bride comes to mind. It's like some fantasy story. <laughs> it's just stupid. We We like each other so much. That has grown out of the last 20-some or 30-some years. But really, I date the the ease to the day I saw that. I just saw he loved me and I let that in. And yeah, and there are lots of little decision points along the way, but those just kind of arose. Uh, you know, like I'd realized there's something I could I could get upset about or not. And not started to look like a really good option. And we tease each other a lot. So uh, Miles used to wash dishes without soap. <laughs> and, you know, there were years where I, I would yell or argue or fight about that. And then there were years when it came to me to, to laugh about that. It's like, what a curious thing. <laughs> anyway, ask me a question. I don't know what to say. Beautiful. I love that. I mean like such an important point there let letting love in yeah in a relationship yes but in life i mean how like so much suffering i see comes essentially from resisting love and resisting yeah. love uh life itself in a way and life shows up in you know a multitude of ways to love us like as, hearing you say that term mention that term letting love in that, that kind of reminds me right back to the beginning of our conversation about these first people who wanted to work with you. Essentially, yes. they wanted to love you. You know, they wanted yeah. to be in relationship with you in some form. And uh, it became easier once you let that love in. Absolutely. I sometimes think that the story of my life in terms of a spiritual journey is all about discovering and then letting go of the countless ways in which I manage myself to be lovable. You know, manage my image, manage the impressions, try to be better, just manage myself. And I've often seen, it's looked to me like I've set up my life to create dependence in people, to make a good impression help people a lot, then get them depending on me, and then run screaming in the night, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow I'm beginning to see, you know, if you just show up as who you are and do what you're given to do and don't need to do any better than that, then you can be infinitely generous with what you got and not worry about what you don't think you have. And I, this is something new that I'm learning the last couple years about we, yeah, I love what you're saying, Phil. It's letting love in all the way around, in all the places, without all the people. Let somebody say hi to you, not worry. They're not asking for your firstborn child. They're not necessarily even asking you to say hi back. You made that up, you know. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. What if everything that we interact with is there to support us, not to yeah. 
not to ask for something. Yeah, I mean, so here, like, it just reminds I want to just share this with the listeners as well. At this point, it feels appropriate. that. that so for me, I love there's a few things that I've taken out of A Course in Miracles. I've just mm-hmm. dipped in and out of that. And um, there, um, the course talks about our basic fear being not lovable. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we have this fearful question, am I loved or am I lovable? Yeah. Um, and then the basic truth being that, well, yes, we are loved and we are lovable. And there's like mm-hmm. this dance between the fear and the knowing. Yeah. And also in that, um, just taking that just one step, this is, this really helped me reconcile my relationship with my dad after, you know, us not talking for 10 years. Um, seeing that all behaviors, now I don't know whether this is true, but I like the idea. Okay. All behaviors are either an expression of love or yeah. a call for love. Yeah. And just just seeing that, like anything we do is either an expression of love or a call for love. That seems to really open up the floodgates, if you like, of compassion. Yeah. And I, what comes to me is it's almost like love and life are the same thing. Yeah. So the apple tree blossoming is an expression of love. The apple tree, um, if it gets... Uh, uh, damaged or uh, diseased calls for love. It's an expression of life and a call for life. And I'm more and more, this goes back to that right wrong thing. It's like, because even love, we have so many layers of story and projection around it, that love is good. It's like, for me, it's just life. Life is freaking amazing. Life energy. Holy cow! It's like, whoa! And so all the, there, it can be no loss. There can be no debt. There can be no loss or debt in life because we're part of this whole. And, and it's okay that we get attached to our personal expression of it because that's part of the game. It's part of how we express it. But yeah, Beautiful. yeah, it's, just part of this amazing life just doing life doing life doing life molly the time's flown by and i always, I always know this is such a beautiful conversation when i'm listening and, and talking with somebody i think oh i can use that clip or i can use that clip you know so i'm so excited about that so i just have two more questions for you so it's it's as far as i can tell it's mostly coaches that are listening to this podcast and, you know, people that contact me, a lot of people are perhaps in the first few years of, yeah. of, of uh, building a coaching practice. You've got a bunch of them in a room for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. What, what would your message to them be? Relax. Relax. You've got something to offer. that doesn't need to be managed, that doesn't need to be efforted. And if you, when you relax into what you have to offer and don't get in your heads and try to figure out what your mission or your purpose or your passion is, but when you just let yourself get a feel for what you have to offer, get a feel for that and play with ways to put it out in the world. Don't worry too much about whether or not they work. It's like riding a bike. Get a feel for riding the bike. Get a feel for coaching. Get a feel for telling people what you do. Muck it up, mess it up, but get a feel for it. And you'll get a feel for it better the more you relax. Beautiful, thank you. And and finally then, Molly, so for you personally, what's the purpose of the work? that you do? Well, you know, and I'm, I'm willing to be completely found out to be completely deluded and wrong about this, but I want to increase the amount of love and light in the world by increasing the amount of wisdom in the world. And I am the first to say I may not even know what wisdom is, but that's what I'm up to. Um, But maybe we're all just simply agents for 
So transference exactly. and sharing it exactly. With it's beautiful. it's not my job to know yeah. if I'm. It's just my job to do my job. <laughs> so Molly, it's been a really delightful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed this time, and uh, it just feels like we've scratched the surface, really. Um, so yeah. maybe at some point we will dive into some of this stuff a little bit deeper. But yeah, really, thank you so much. Perfect, and I will connect you with my friend Andrea. Well, that's another lovely conversation. I loved Molly's message at the end there. Relax and let yourself get a feel for what you have to offer and play with ways to put that out into the world, like riding a bike, muck it up and mess it up, she said. You'll get a better feel for it the more you relax. And, and yet another guest who came across coaching and indeed had it described to her as something she was already doing when her focus was on simply helping people. That's such an important point, not to get caught up in any definition of what coaching is. Um, just go out and be of service and help people. Make it about them, not you. You don't have to teach them anything. Please don't go and beat them over the head with an understanding. Just, just go and help them in any way you can. And touching on Molly's relationship with her husband of 40 years and partner of 43 years, you get a sense that they have a lot of fun together. And I think that too is a great clue for anything sustainable in life. Allow it to be fun. This conversation was a lot of fun. What have you got from it? What have you heard today that has inspired you to take some kind of action in helping others? Would you like some help in making that fun? I'd love to hear from you and possibly explore with you. I get a number of messages each after each episode and it's it's always wonderful to hear how these conversations are impacting people and inspiring them to go and be of service and to live their coaching life. And in that respect, I love you to help me get this out to be of help to more people. And one way you can do that is by leaving an honest review on iTunes. It will take you less than a minute. And if you do that, please let me know. I may have something for you in return. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Coaching Life podcast. Thank you once again for listening. I wish you much love and joy. Enjoy.